Hello friends, welcome to the show. My name is Tom Broback and my guest today is Meredith Chaput. Meredith is a board certified clinical specialist in sports physical therapy and a PhD student studying neuromechanics. She's passionate about bridging the gap between neurologic and orthopedic rehab interventions and musculoskeletal rehab. We talk about a lot of fun things today, including the use of VR and rehab. Thank you, Meredith, for making time to be on the podcast, and thank you all for listening to the show. I appreciate all my listeners and look forward to having more amazing guests on the show soon. He shared some of those things with me just kind of briefly, and I was like, yeah, this stuff seems kind of next level, kind of where the industry is going, kind of where, you know, exercises are always going to change and and we're always going to grow and adapt, but there's this kind of like new complex level, whether you want to call it neuro, whether you want to call it uh, cognitive load, those kind of things. Uh, And it seems like uh, the kind of stuff that you're involved with is what we don't know a lot about, but the more we know, the more it seems pertinent. Uh, both to our careers and also to the industry at large. So it's really cool about it is like as a third year PT student, like all of the neuro and orthopedic rehab was kind of like new to me. And I had never thought of neuro being super involved. And then the more I read, it all started to click. And actually like the aging literature and actual like hard neuro stroke, those types of things are years ahead of us on research as far as where these things go so it's really kind of interesting once you get like down into the nitty-gritty about it of like how far sports and ortho is actually in my opinion kind of behind the ball on it and incorporating some of these neurocognitive concepts why do you think there's such a disconnect between those two honestly I think because we concentrated so long on just like performance we thought that like because I could run faster or lift heavier that made like a better athlete and like one of a good example is like NFL combine training and there's the people who do best on the bench press right the people who do best on all of those sort of metrics don't end up being in the NFL the longest They're not the best performers in the NFL, but it's the metrics that we, for whatever reason, base performance off of. And it's really probably the people who are like more adaptable and resilient that perform better than the person that can squat, deadlift or bench the most weight. That's funny they brought that up because I've talked to other coaches about that. Like, what's your KPI? What's your key performance indicator? And growing up, like when I was in middle school, high school, and kind of through those years in the NFL, it's bench squat, clean, deadlift, 40 yard. And some of those have some value, but they're never the whole picture. Like you said, they're not the best uh, indicators of future performance. Um, And and going back to the NFL, it's a league that takes a lot to change. Um, But when that change happens, it has a big ripple effect. What do you think needs to change in something like an NFL combine that's trying to predict future performance. What are some of those areas that either A, we know right now are better indicators or B, you think could be better ones going down the road? 
I think we're now starting to kind of get into it with the cognitive aspects. Like when you think about what makes a good athlete or what's going to make somebody um, come back from sport better, what actually like causes an injury to happen, it is so multifactorial, right? It goes from like physical readiness to mental readiness sleep, hydration, nutrition, like there's so many variables that go into it. It's really hard to like pinpoint one thing, but I think prior to maybe within the last five years or so, um, we see a lot of just physical performance metrics and now things such as like baseline cognitive testing, like baseline impact tests we're seeing in some of our high school athletes that like doing a concussion impact test can predict injury risk or predicts your movement patterns and stuff. So I think the further that we get down into this route, we're really going to see an integration of how does somebody use vision and like visual processing speed, reaction time, how do those dictate movement quality and decision making? Because really, in my opinion, in sports, you're like, trying to make the right decisions at the right time. And that requires your perception of the environment, right? To then make an action that is appropriate and you're constrained by your physical abilities. So somebody who is mm. slower has to move faster before they're able to perceive all the appropriate or like relevant information they need to make a decision, right? So they intertwine with one another. But if we, I think to this point have been really mitigating the perception in the interaction within the environment. And we've been so focused on the performance aspect. I think it's the athletes that blend the two really well that are your high performers, not just your physical performers or the ones that are like really good on the cognitive spectrum. In sports, we call that vision. It's not just your ability to see, but to anticipate, interpret quickly, make quick decisions. And coaches really value that. And it seems like it's an attribute that is given to the best athletes. Like he has great vision or vision. She sees the court very well. Those kind of things always come up with great athletes. Yeah. But it seems like there's a very disconnect on A, how to measure that. And then B, how to train that to get better. Because if that's what makes great athletes great, we should be able to measure it, to track it, and then hopefully improve it. Do you have suggestions for coaches who want to work on their athletes vision? So I think one of like the, one of the market products right now, this isn't me trying to sell them. It's that we use them a lot in our research is stroboscopic glasses. And so they're pretty cost-effective. Um, they're basically just like strobe glasses that flash. And what they do is it decreases the amount of visual input you get while you're training so for instance, in like a baseball batter, they have a very short amount of time to see the ball, leave the pitcher's hand and then make it to the plate. Okay. So they have to try to anticipate what pitch is going to come and then pick up the relevant information from like the arm path to the ball before it releases, because then they barely have any reaction time to actually swing. So by training with, stro with strobe glasses, um, it decreases the visual input that they're allowed to have. So it almost makes them have to train with more precision and train with, um, because it makes them pick up the relevant information faster okay. so that they can hit the ball. And so when you train with those types of glasses, though, 
you don't just want to like put them on and then do like drop jump landings. Okay. Because like you can still cognitively think about your landing quality, right? Like changing the vision doesn't dictate or manipulate it that much. You need like an environmental task or something okay. like ball being tossed at you, that kind of stuff. So I think you're seeing a lot more of that with like kind of reaction light timing systems, whether it's like fit light or like blaze pods are popular now, those types of things that light up in different colors and you have athletes do choice reaction tasks. Those types of things are becoming more prevalent, I think. And that's how you would train visual motor speed. But like also our brain works in to inhibit responses. So you're constantly trying to inhibit motor plans essentially in sport. And so a lot of the things that we do in physical therapy specifically are like all planned movements. We do very little inhibiting movement or it's like reaction based where I choose between one task or another, right? I don't choose a task and then, oops, a second stimulus gets presented and now I have to inhibit that response to make a different decision. So I think that's actually probably an avenue where rehab and sports performance are different because sports performance seems to be a little bit more ahead of the game on those types of interventions. Whereas in rehab, we're not really trained to be really good at those interventions. We're trained to get your range of motion back and to get your strength back. Mm-hmm. And then that's kind of like the next step over the hump. A lot of the times my patients run out of insurance visits by the time I'm at a stage in rehab where they could be doing some of those higher level drills. So it's almost a matter of like, how do I get these things integrated into lower level drills in physical therapy so that maybe somebody doesn't lose their visual motor capacity that they had and like detrain their cognitive side, just like their muscles detrain. There's a lot to unpack there. Going back to the environmental task, so tracking a baseball or tracking a football, there has to be some like visual component to the task that you're using the strobe light glasses with, not just a sport specific movement, like a squat or a jump. Like there has to be some kind of uh, tracking per se for it to be effective. Is that correct? Yes. For, for the most effect. Yes. So you would want to use those if you were going to do like a, like a soccer cone dribbling drill, right. With the defender because you have to perceive where the, like the defender would be that kind of stuff. So you can use it with like an environment in that such, but just by doing like jump training alone with the glasses on, you're not going to see the same perceptual effect. Gotcha. Is there a lot of research to support that kind of training right now? Logically, it makes a ton of sense. I'm sure anecdotally you've had great success with it. Is the research kind of catching up with that? when these implements are used with athletes? Yeah, I think they are. And I think that's where, that's where we're headed. We're seeing more and more with it. Um, especially like out of Duke, they've done quite a bit of work with the strobe glasses, but I think it's definitely an area that we have for like improvement and that more and more people are starting to integrate it. I don't know of off the top of my head of like many like clinical trials let's say those take a lot of effort, especially in like a um, injured population. They're not as easy to um, run with like Mm -hmm. doing so sorts of like training effects. Um, But I think that that's the route that the area is going to go. 
also going to that reactive component in therapy. So if a physical therapist has, let's just say an ACL patient, they're one or two weeks outside of surgery, and they want to do more of this kind of reactive type uh, situations for them. Mm -hmm. But with an ACL, you're limited in what you can do. And you have to keep the main goals, the main goals, you got to work on motion, you got to work on strength, you got to work on walking. How are what are some uh, ideas for therapists to implement these reactive type components that that you talk about, and then you put out on social media a lot into there that kind of early stage rehab? Yeah, we use a lot of virtual reality. Um, So it can be like, even like first person video of somebody performing a task that kind of targets into your mirror neuron system. The more familiar the task is, and the more the video you're watching looks like yourself. So it's really good if you can actually film the person who's gonna be doing the exercise um, doing it you can kind of tap into that motor system and get um, similar or more activation out of the neurons associated with that task. I like to use like PowerPoints. Most physical therapists have PowerPoints available to them. They have their computer, right? And so we have like a slide deck that my advisor shares with people, but like I've made lots of PowerPoints in the clinic where just like a Stroop test So the test where it's like, say like the word red, but the red, the word red is in like blue font. Oh, I hate those. I do so bad on those. (laughs) You have to say, right? Like the color of the word and not the word itself. Right. So I'll do it where it's like, okay, if it's congruent, which this would be like a low level cognitive task, if it's congruent or the word is red and the font is red, you do a straight leg raise. Okay, this is like week okay. one. Yeah. If it's incongruent, you're going to do a quad set instead. So okay. it just provides a little bit of challenge to them, right? So they're not thinking about the task that they're doing or the physical component of it. They're engaged in the cognitive task. You can step that up as rehab progresses to maybe it's like a simple math. Okay. So if the screen flashes quickly a simple math and it's four plus four if it adds to an even number they're going to do a lunge that adds to an odd number they're going to do like a bowl or squat or something like that and so then you now start to have like a two two step processing and so that's like powerpoint is probably one of the simplest ways where you can still engage visually in a task if you don't have a computer you can put everything on flashcards. Mm-hmm. So just have like a deck of different colored flashcards, right? And you can make colors, different um, commands, essentially. The other thing is you can use like working memory tasks. So you could do everything you could do on the computer, but without it. So, right, you could just have them um, do math tables as you say it, or you could have them do like serial seven subtraction. So they're counting down from a hundred by sevens. And stuff like that. And what you see is when you load somebody cognitively, their physical performance deteriorates. But when they have a peripheral injury like an ACL injury, it deteriorates even more than somebody who's healthy. Sure. So it's because they don't have that, like they don't have the somatic sensation. They don't have the proprioceptive information that they need to to complete the task as well. But it's important that we use cognitive tasks so that we don't compensate with 
thinking about the task throughout therapy, if that makes sense. Right. Because at some point, if you're, from my understanding, if they're doing really poorly with it, like they can't get a quad set, it might be beneficial for them to really focus on the quad, to look at it, to engage with it, to use NMES. But if they're having like a decent quad and they're moving like the way you want them to, you need to dissociate that, that focus on it. Because when you get back to everyday life and the sports, you can't spend all of your mental energy, focus on your knee, focus on your quadriceps. You have to focus at the environment around you in order to be successful. Exactly. You're not thinking about where, where's the position of my knee when I make this jump landing, you know? And I think that's where we focus a lot of our time in therapy is on those components. And so it takes away from the implicit skill and what you do on the court or on the field is going to be implicit. Like you get whatever you need to do to get the job done is what an athlete does, whatever comes natural to them. So by training them in those ways, it's probably not even transferring long-term out onto the field. And then they just trained that way for nine months to a year, mm-hmm. you know, to then not use any of the strategy or very little of the strategy that um, you gave them in therapy. So it's difficult. I will say that if you're using NMES, I'm a huge NMES proponent for whomever cares, but if you're using NMES, you should be doing a cognitive challenge because like the NMES tells them when to contract. So it does not make sense. And if you have it turned up to a high enough intensity, right, the stim is going to do all of the work. It doesn't make sense at that point to like not do a cognitive challenge. That's right. Professional yeah. bias. <laughs> it's like having someone else like do your chores for you. It's like you're exactly. not really doing anything. Like you can spend time like doing something else or helping someone else out. Like if your mom always makes your bed for you, you can't say, Oh, I was busy making my bed. Like your mom already did for you. The the east and the electrical stimulation is firing the quad for you. So we need to challenge that brain in another capacity because it's not doing its full capacity trying to fire the quad because yeah. it's struggling with it. Okay. I like that. Do you also use, um, for our PT friends out there, do you use, so will you do like NMES, BFR, and then a cognitive load task with the quad sets and the straight leg raises early on? Will you combine all of those? Is that too much? So I'm going to be honest with you. I don't use a lot of BFR. Because why? Because one, I just, it's a tool that I, I had access to it. Um, especially in the athletic training room, I had a lot of access to it. If I used it, especially early stage rehab, it was always coupled with NMES because BFR, from what I know of the literature, I don't know a ton. So if somebody has something to share with me, I would love that so I can learn more about it. But it's more of a muscle pump, right? Like it preserves muscle, muscle girth really well. Um, But in something like quad inhibition in early stage, it's due to the sensory disruption that occurs in the, in the ligament and the reflex that goes from that area in your sensory system to your spinal cord back out to your quad. 
And from what I know about BFR, I, I don't know of any studies that have actually looked at seeing if training with BFR actually improves that reflex. Does, do uh, they show that it inhibits it? Like it's it's detrimental or it's just kind of a no, neutral, no effect? I just don't, exactly, don't no effect. Okay. So in, I think there needs to be more on like the neurologic adaptations that occur with it. And so that's why I always say NMES. NMES is one of, NMES and eccentric exercise are the two that have been shown recently, more recently, to actually improve this process and improve quad activation. So that's why I'll always couple, if I'm gonna use BFR with those components, I actually start my ACL rehab, I use sensory tens first. So there's some good literature to support using sensory tens and um, like focal joint cooling to improve the reflex that I just talked about, excitability. So you'll actually do focal joint cooling of your knee before you even start exercise. And then it gives you a therapeutic window about 30 to 60 minutes where that reflex is actually increased so that you can get the most bang for your buck out of your quadriceps exercises. Okay. So those are the modalities that I tend to use. Um, I also use sensory tens first because I've, I've personally had three knee injuries and that required surgery. And so I know how painful it is to put NMES on somebody and pump an inhibited quadricep when your knee is swollen and just angry. And so TENS is a way to like upregulate the sensory system. And you can get a very similar response by using that within like the first week so that you can let your knee swelling and all of that stuff kind of calm down and then step into the NMES route. When you say focal uh, joint swelling, that you mean like you just ice the knee for a short period of time. And then with the tens, you put that kind of above and below the knee. Yep. So when you do focal joint cooling, you want to do it just to the joint and not over like the quad tendon or patellar tendon. How do you do that? Do you have like a specific strip? No, I just put packs on either side. Okay. Instead of, and like, I'm not as worried about the hamstring. So I'm like, okay with that. Got it. Yeah, because it's quad inhibition, I want it like as far away from that tendon as possible. Okay, that makes sense. I guess that would work. Just I was just thinking a little strip all the way around, but I just if you get to the sides, you avoid the tendons as well. Yep, that makes sense. And then yeah, for tens, it's two pads above, two pads below the knee is what I've generally used. Okay, and then you'll go into so like we're talking early stage rehab. Let's just say ACL is a very common one. Um, you're doing like quad sets, you're doing straight leg raises. So you'll do like with the cognitive loading, you'll do, we're going to do 30 repetitions. And if the number is odd, or if the answer is odd, you do a quad set. If it's even, you do a straight leg raise. We're going to do 30 of those. And it might be a disproportionate one or the other, but you don't care because you're getting the loading that you want. You know, just about, right? So like, if you make your PowerPoint, right? If you make your PowerPoint, you know how many evens or odds they're gonna be. So if you're somebody who wants to like, make sure they get 30 reps of each exercise in, 15 reps of each exercise, right? You're just gonna like pre-program that into your PowerPoint so that you know, when you do your documentation, you're like, I did three sets of whatever, 12 repetitions of this. 
Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. That makes total sense. I like, I'm a little controlling, so that would be perfect for me. Uh, going back to uh, the virtual reality. So the uh, virtual reality, it's not new to anybody, but it's something that's gaining stream. Uh, I don't know, uh, uh, or gaining mainstream. I don't know if it's accelerated as much as people anticipated, but it's definitely out there. And it's definitely something that is not utilized a lot in traditional physical therapy. Um, I've always thought about finding ways to incorporate it, but I've never really kind of pushed myself to that level. What recommendations do you have for therapists or or strength coaches or sports performance coaches who want to use virtual reality uh, with their athletes? So I know that sometimes cost can be an issue um, for integrating these things. So our lab is actually in the process of working on an app. And within the app, we'll have several videos that are like pre-programmed and suggested exercises for use. And so for somebody who had like a Google Cardboard, which is like a $20 cardboard head headphone or head case that you can literally put your phone in and watch the videos on, it'd be perfect for somebody like that. Um, I think that the utility of it is important that what VR really does, especially in the early stages of training is like, let's say I have somebody who's a skier, okay? And they might be hesitant to weight shift, okay? They have like this fear avoidance. Um, They don't, they're unloading their affected limb after surgery. I can put them in VR, right? And show them a video of somebody like doing the ski task that they did, right? Just like lightly going down a slope or whatever it might be. And just tell them, why don't you weight shift to when they weight shift, okay? And it immediately immerses them in an activity that they find is joyful, right? I've found anecdotally that it helps decrease fear Mm -hmm. substantially. Patients really, really enjoy doing it. So it's more fun. And especially if you have like a Google Cardboard that they have 20 bucks, most patients are willing to buy that. And then you can send them home with it, give them the app, give them whatever videos on YouTube VR that you want them to watch. They can go home with that exercise and it's more enjoyable for them to do than weight shifts at their counter, you know? And so I think if you prescribe it appropriately, it can um, impact compliance and fear. I use it in research right now to employ like a cognitive task. So I have this task that flashes a group of six numbers or six letters really quickly. And then an array of boxes will pop up. One of the boxes is red. And then they have to tell me what letter was in that box before. And what VR does is it doesn't let you see the environment. So it takes away the horizon. It takes away the rest of your peripheral input from like, your lower body and whatever else you're like seeing in your periphery. So it forces you to use somatic sensation to detect where your body is in place. And when we think about like ligament injury, it's a deficit to the somatosensory system. So by putting somebody in virtual reality, I'm making them use that system because I'm taking away their compensatory vision, right? And by putting a cognitive task in front of them to do it just in the VR headset, even though it might not be like a 3D environment that they're in, is taking away the vision that you might have, even still by like looking at a computer screen 
if I look at a computer screen and play a PowerPoint, I can still balance pretty easily because I have my peripheral vision, but VR takes that away. So I think there's a lot of utility, whether you're gonna show somebody actually like a performance video, or if you're just gonna display your cognitive challenges in it, I think there's utility in both. When you talk about performance video, what kind of videos are best? Is it like a highlight tape that they might've made for recruiting? Is it a task of them doing like simple things at home? Or is it something completely different? What would be best for, for people to use? So you want, um, a lot of the research in this is in like mirror neurons and you want it to be like a first person video. So if you're gonna, you might have somebody who is unable to do like a full knee extension machine, right? But you want them to like visualize themselves doing like a heavy, heavy knee um, extension, okay? You can have a video of somebody doing a really heavy knee extension, right? But in your clinic, you might be having them do 90 degree isometrics into a band, okay? So then it's like, okay, every time this person kicks out on the video, I want you to kick out into the band as hard as you can, okay? So even though they can't do the task, it's still similar enough to what task you're having them do and what task you want them to do in the clinic to like knock into that mirror neuron system. There's literature surrounding like game film and stuff, but that's actually something I'm not super familiar with. I know that um, in the area of like skill acquisition, um, there's not a ton of carryover when you ask somebody by watching game film, like what decision would you make here? And then you put them into that scenario. That's usually not always the decision that they actually make when they're faced with it. So I think that carryover is a little bit more complicated and I don't know as much about that, but the way that our lab really uses virtual reality from like a performance perspective is with first person video. Do you struggle with, um, there's kind of this like teeter totter between using virtual reality kind of game and find things where it's like super helpful, but also it can kind of appear like this is kind of uh, um, smoke and mirrors, kind of like it's like too much game and not enough work. Do you yeah. struggle with that balance at all? And what have you do? If so, like what have you done to kind of help with that? I think it's just like anything like going back to a cognitive challenge. So just because I say that rehab should probably include some sort of cognitive challenge doesn't mean that I'm not going to put somebody on a squat rack to like get their most out of them, right? If I'm doing squats, at 80%, somebody's one rep max, I'm probably not concentrated on cognitively loading them during that, right? Because I want to get the strength gain right. out of my session. So I think there's a balance between how we use it and the dosage is something that we don't know a lot about right now. We know like, hey, this can be used to improve performance, but we don't know the sweet spot, I would say, yet. There's a, I have to find the study, but they did a research study on um, what are the best like indicators of a successful rehab program. And the top two in the study were how close does the patient live to the clinic? Mm -hmm. And then do they like their therapist or not? Yeah. Which is, which is so funny because it has nothing to do with like what we're actually doing or exactly. sets and reps or modalities or not modalities or yeah. exercise selection. But what it tells me is that, you know, if I can take five minutes of my session to 
uh, in quotes, play this game, uh, but also helps them like do some cognitive loading, get them to buy in, get them to do what I want them to do. And they feel way better about it. It's a hundred percent worth it. And cause it doesn't take very much time. It doesn't take very much money and it can be a huge buy-in, especially for this age group that we constantly see struggle with adherence to PT that, you know, 14, 22 year old male or female who just wants to get back to their sport and they don't want to be teeter-tying back and forth at the counter at home. They don't want to be doing their thousandth quad set of the day, but if you incorporate something fun, something, uh, just game like something uh, visually stimulating, it seems like it make all the difference in the world to them. Yep, a hundred percent. It's kind of like when somebody comes into your clinic and the first thing you try to do is gait train them. After ACL reconstruction, I tell you to strike with your heel, roll over your toe, keep your knee straight, push off all of the things that like should just come natural to you, right? And then this person is fixated on it. And then for the next three weeks, they can't walk normal. And all they're telling you is how they can't do the things that they did. And really what probably should have happened is if you would have just like thrown a basketball at this kid and told them to just like walk and talk with you it would have been ironed out way better than any of the directions that you just said to them. You know, like you can, you can overcoach somebody right? and overeducate somebody. That's one of the things that I'm really passionate about. And so I think the more that we can do in therapy, just like let people move the way that they can or to formulate the environment around them to get the movement output that you really want is key. And that's where I think the cognitive challenges, like patient buy-in for sure. Like my patients anecdotally would much rather come to therapy and like do the cognitive challenges than they would and just not be engaged with it. I think the other thing is like patient autonomy. We're really good at saying, okay, you need to do your quad exercises. You really need to do this exercise at home, right? Instead of having a list of exercises and saying, okay, you pick three. Cause you know, in your head, you want to do three, three quad exercises today, you know, tell the patient, okay, this is your list. You pick which ones you want to do They They pick the hard ones. If you've educated them well, right. And they see the benefit in what you're trying to provide them. They pick the ones that are hard versus you telling them to do that. I'll tell my patients, like, are you sick of this one? Are you bored of this one? And they'll giggle a little bit. I'm like, yeah, that's what I thought. Let's go on to something harder. Like, oh yeah, I didn't want to tell you. I'm like, I know it's been two weeks. Like we need to progress you. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you like perfected this. It's important, but at some point, yeah, let's make it harder. And I think uh, patients like that. They, especially if they have really high goals to get back to, they're not the type of people who want the easy way out. They're not the type of people who skip stuff. Like they want to be challenged and they see a challenge as playing soccer, going skiing, playing hockey they don't see it as like, okay, like we're doing leg raises. It's like, all right, let's move. Like I got to get back to hockey or basketball or football or whatever. And uh, if you help facilitate that, the buy-in I think would be a lot higher. Um, I also am glad you brought up, you had several knee injuries because I figured you're someone who has been through PT in the past to be like this committed, this involved, but also like to go to another level because the level we're at right now like it's pretty good, but it's definitely not like the end game. Like there's definitely other avenues to pursue other areas of medicine and science to implement into the current orthopedic standard. 
Can you talk a little bit more about how those injuries shaped uh, your career, your mission, your focus? Yeah. So I actually started my academic adventure in undergrad, I guess my freshman year. I was an elementary education major. And I was supposed to play college basketball. I got to college and mentally I was there, right? Physically, I could not perform at the level that I knew I could. And it was like heart wrenching to do that and to be in that position. And then that was kind of that realization was what kind of made me think, okay, I want to go the physical therapy route because I want to make sure any patient that I can put my hands on has the opportunity to at least try to play at their highest level or return back to the sport that they want, right? Rather than me, who I just felt like I I didn't have that opportunity for myself. And that's what like kind of got me into sports. It, I knew I wanted to do sports. And um, within the first semester of PT school, I went to my advisor, my research mentor, Terry Grindstaff, who had done um, a lot of research in the ACL space. And I said, I really want to do a sports residency. Like, how do I how do I go about this? I just knew I really wanted sports. And he was the one who told me, "Okay, this is great. Here's all the things you need to do and like things you can be involved in and whatnot but also go do an outpatient neuroclinical. And he, all he told me was, you'll thank me later, just go do an outpatient neuroclinical. And I was like, okay, well, obviously from a research perspective, he knows something that like, I don't, like, why would he be telling me to like do this? And then it was through that rotation that I had, that I saw a lot of overlap. A lot of my ortho patients were very neuro-y. And I was like, oh, this is interesting. And so we did a lot of cognitive challenge-based interventions with them in the clinic that I was at. And then it was through this where I started to dive a little bit more into the research. And it was just at the time where Dr. Grooms, my advisor now, started to publish more on like visual motor training. I think his 2015 paper in JOSBT on visual motor training and ACL rehab, his commentary was like the first thing that I ever read in this space. And it completely transformed my thought process on it. And then I had some coursework in motor learning. I had my clinical that was at Exos and their methodology is all like external focus of attention. They're very big into cues there. And so it was like my first dose of, okay, now I have to be cognizant of how I speak to patients, you know? And so everything just sort of kind of aligned for me down this path. And then it wasn't until I was in residency where I actually realized everything came full circle for me. And I realized in patient care one day that the less I spoke, the better my patients performed. The less like fear they had to do the task. If I just told them, jump off the box. They're like, well, what if I, what if I do it wrong? It doesn't matter. Just jump off the box. Okay. The first time you're, you're going to be fine. It doesn't matter. I just want you to like be confident in what you're doing. We'll worry about the rest later. Okay. That that was probably the bigger hurdle for me than making sure that their mechanics were perfect. The first time jumping off a four inch box for the first time or doing a lateral step down off four inch box. It doesn't matter how you do it. You're not going to probably hurt yourself 
as you do it. Okay. But it was became more about how do I get the best, most out of my patient in the most confident way. And I just, through all of my experiences, kind of led me to doing my PhD. I love research. And like my goal is to blend kind of cognitive neuroscience, motor learning, and physical therapy together to truly get like a holistic view of how we engage in movement and how we can like optimize performance. Because I feel like these areas have really good research separate from one another, but nobody's really come together to kind of push it all there. And I feel like that's what my lab here at Ohio University is kind of really doing. I absolutely love that. I love you're filling a niche, you're filling something that needs attention that doesn't have, it has some juice there, but there's definitely some progressions that can be made. And you're combining not only uh, your passion for therapy and helping people, but also your history of having injuries, not performing it the way you wanted to, uh, playing sports, like you're melting all these things together into something that can make a huge difference uh, for a ton of people, for a ton of professionals, a ton of athletes, just a ton of people in the field. Um, and I'm really excited to see where your journey takes you. I'm excited to see the research that you do, uh, the different work that you do in your lab. And I hope you get that app uh, out uh, sometime soon because I definitely want to use it with my patients. So thank you, Meredith, for jumping on the podcast. I really appreciate you. And like I said, I look forward to see what your future holds. Thank you. I appreciate you for having me.